Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Kelsey Bowler. Today, we're going to discuss all the drama unfolding in The Bachelorette over the self-identified Christian contestant having sex before marriage, Miley Cyrus saying she doesn't want kids because the earth can't handle it, and Planned Parenthood giving its female doctor president the boot. As much as there is to talk about there, we're going to try to speed through these topics to get to our awesome interview with Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino, authors of the new best-selling book, Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. We learned things previously not reported about Kavanaugh accuser Christine Blasey Ford and more about the personal impact the battle bore on Kavanaugh and his direct family. After that, Molly and Carrie will stick around to help us crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week here on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. Those of you whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting our show by leaving a review or rating on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. It really does make a difference. Let's get right to it. This week, the head of Planned Parenthood, Dr. Lena Wen, was forced out of the organization by its board chairs for reportedly not emphasizing abortion enough. The New York Times reported that Dr. Wen had been the first physician to lead the organization in decades and that the people who were familiar with the move said there had been internal strife over her management. The group felt it needed a more aggressive political leader to fight the efforts to roll back access to abortions. Wen said in her own statement that she believes, quote, the best way to protect abortion care is to be clear that it is not a political issue, but a health care one, and that we can expand support for reproductive rights by finding common ground with the large majority of Americans who understand reproductive health care as the fundamental health care that it is. Well, that is if you believe that reproductive health care includes access to abortion. So, in other words, Lauren, one's position on abortion doesn't sound like it's politically extreme enough for the nation's largest abortion provider. This was big news this week, and I have to say some conservatives had a bit of fun with it. The responses on Twitter were pretty glorious. That is, if you think it's okay to joke about abortion. Ben Shapiro tweeted, for example, She was terminated before full term. Chuck Ross said, Their body, their choice. Steve Guest, Planned Parenthood likes to terminate their CEOs just like they want to terminate babies in the third trimester. Catherine Glenn Foster said Dr. Lena Wen survived eight whole months at Planned Parenthood before she got terminated. Longer than most babies there do, to be honest. A random guy on Twitter named Adam said, I hope they made you comfortable while they made a decision. And finally, Stephen Miller said, It sucks they just ended your term like this without thinking of the pain you might feel. Lauren, is it appropriate to joke about abortion? That's a hard question. I do think it is appropriate in some circumstances. It's one of those things where it's almost a First Amendment issue, where if we say you can't make any joke about abortion, you're trying to stifle all speech. And in order to talk about issues, we should be able to joke about it and get upset about it. But these were pretty funny. These were pretty harmless. It it didn't it wasn't like you were joking about a woman who just had an abortion or was planning on having an abortion. There were no babies actually harmed in these tweets. So I agree. They're pretty funny. Right. I think it would be different if we were joking about abortions that actually took place, because in that case, there were actual lives lost. But in this case, people are making light of the situation where Planned Parenthood is aborting its own president, (laughs) for lack of better terms. I also want to know, do you have sympathy for when? Because it's interesting. I read her statement as pushing back a, a bit against Planned Parenthood. Clearly, there were disagreements regarding the approach Planned Parenthood should take towards, quote unquote, women's health care, if you can call what they do that. But that said, she's also so complicit and supportive of everything that they do. 
I do have sympathy for her. I I honestly think that her strategy for Planned Parenthood is the smart strategy. They've already won over their base. There's no reason for them to get more extreme. You can't abort a baby in the 11th month because that's murder. I mean, maybe maybe that's where Planned Parenthood wants to go. But her plan was to look for these middle America Trump voters and try to convince them that Planned Parenthood is about women's health and it's not about abortion. But what Planned Parenthood wants to do is go deeper on, no, we're abortion. No, we're fighting back against the President Trump. So I feel bad for her. But at the same time, I'm happy to see that Planned Parenthood is failing and going in a bad direction because I ultimately want to see Planned Parenthood ended. Right. So you you think this is a losing strategy, them doubling down and being aggressive on the pro-abortion front and really just embracing the strategy of shout your abortion. Over the 4th of July weekend, when published an article in the Washington Post that you and I were reading over about her experiencing a miscarriage. And I thought this was really interesting that she decided to write about it because on one hand, I sympathize with anybody, regardless of your political views, if you have experienced that kind of loss. That said, when you experience a miscarriage, you are acknowledging that you lost a baby. Um, if it's just a clump of cells, like, why should we be sad about it? So how does she, you know, kind of like write as if she wants sympathy from people and then also turn around and go back to working at the nation's largest abortion provider that doesn't acknowledge that is indeed a child that was lost in this situation. She uses this article to eventually conclude that if we truly care about the health of women, children, and families, we must commit to policies that provide pregnant women with care, humanity, and dignity that all people deserve. So she doesn't really address the issue of abortion, but you, you know, and I think she clearly wanted to separate abortion from other forms of women's health care. But I think it's just impossible to do that as the head of the nation's largest abortion provider. Yeah, it's just another example that they don't care about science when it comes to abortion. It comes down to whether or not that baby is wanted. But us on the right, we don't believe that. We believe that a baby is a baby, no matter how small, no matter if it's wanted or what, if it's not wanted. So I do feel bad because it is real loss and it is a real child that she she wanted and doesn't have. But she just needs to realize that every baby has that same dignity that her baby had. Right. That's a very good point. And then there's also a BuzzFeed article that came out uh, right after she was, oh, gosh, I'm just at a loss for words, aborted from Planned <laughs> Um, And this article uh, talks about how she basically wasn't woke enough for the organization. She refused reportedly to use trans inclusive language, for example, saying people instead of women. And she reportedly told staff that she believed talking about transgender issues would, quote, isolate people in the Midwest. This gets to your point you're making earlier uh, that she had a different strategy for the organization. Um, But the fact that she resisted these changes just shows how far left Planned Parenthood wants to go to the point that, you know, they don't want to use the term women's health care because they now think men can get pregnant, too. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And again, Planned Parenthood, please go down this road. Please (laughs) double down. Please be as crazy as you want. Have Alyssa Milano in front of every ad that you do. Because this is this is the road to failure, and we want Planned Parenthood to fail. So more power to you. To wrap this segment up, I want to read a paragraph from Ben Dominich, editor and founder of The Federalist and author of The Transom. I thought his take on Planned Parenthood was interesting. You all might like hearing it. So he said, it'll be interesting to observe where Planned Parenthood goes from here. It will definitely become more political. Whether it ditches the idea that they are for women as opposed to being for men who can get pregnant, cough, BS, remains to be seen. But this is another sign that the illusion of Planned Parenthood as an organization that is about safe, legal, and rare, as opposed to the baby-killing machine it has become, is just that, a facade that ought to be rejected by any responsible media organization covering the issue. 
Planned Parenthood is a collection of radical single-issue extremists at odds with the dominant views of the American people who are still funded by the government thanks to spineless Republicans on Capitol Hill. This is a fact. On that note, we'll be right back to talk about Miley Cyrus saying she doesn't want to have kids. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? If you want to understand what's happening at the court, subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. Welcome back. Miley Cyrus says she doesn't want kids because, quote, the earth can't handle it. I mean, Lauren, she is a wrecking ball. (laughs) (laughs) Cyrus called it a blessing and a curse that women give new life. Quote, We're expected to keep the planet populated, and when that isn't part of our plan or our purpose, there's so much judgment and anger that they try to make and change laws to force it upon you, even if you become pregnant in violent situations. She said in the Elle magazine interview, nobody's more powerful than nature. Quote, nothing. And nature is female. When she's angry, don't F with her. That's the way that I feel women are right now. The earth is angry. She also says we've been treating the earth badly. Quote, we've been doing the same thing to the earth that we do to women. We just take and take and expect it to keep producing. And it's exhausted. It can't produce. Side note, I I am producing as we speak. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting handed a piece of S planet. And I refuse to hand that down to my child until I feel like my child would live on an earth with fish in the water. I am not bringing another person to deal with that. She said that she feels this is what all millennials are dealing with right now, that millennials don't want to reproduce because, quote, we know the earth can't handle it. I think Kelsey had the best hot take as she was reading this. She just G-chatted me in all caps. This is bizarre with like five (laughs) Zs. And it's just crazy. Like, I don't know where her brain's at. So, okay, if you think this is bizarre so far, in this interview with Elle magazine, she also talks about her relationship with her husband, actor Liam Hemsworth. They got married in an intimate ceremony, and she said, there's the idea that if you're a woman, your life is over when you get married. Side note, I feel like my life began when I got married. Getting married was amazing. (laughs) I think it's very confusing to people that I'm married, but my relationship is unique. And I don't know that I would ever publicly allow people in there because it's so complex and modern and new that I don't think we're in a place where people would get it. I mean, do people really think that I'm at home in an effing apron cooking dinner? Side note, how offensive is that to women who are at home in an apron cooking dinner. Also, she's super rich, so I don't think she's at home in an effing apron. I think she pays someone to be at her <laughs> home in an effing apron. Right. Okay, last bit of this quote. I'm in a hetero relationship, but I still am very sexually attracted to women. People become vegetarian for health reasons, but bacon is still effing good, and I know that. I think she actually admitting that it's better to be in a heterosexual relationship because she's relating being healthier to a heterosexual relationship and eating bacon to a homosexual relationship that might be a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> no, this whole interview is crazy. It's all over at L magazine. The reason we wanted to bring it up is, is because as crazy as it sounds. And I think the only reason she can get, she, you know, she, she really gets away with saying these kind of things is because she is so wealthy. She's a celebrity and it's, like a competition among celebrities for who can like be the most unique. Um, but this is a narrative that we're hearing more and more from women on the left, women and men uh, who are saying that if you choose to reproduce, then you are damaging our planet, that our, that our planet physically can't handle more children. I think that's very um, dangerous. It's wrong. Reproducing is the way to save our planet. And we need to push back on this. It's biblical. (laughs) All right. When we come back, we'll be talking about some drama regarding The Bachelorette. Overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle? Looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters? The Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day, plus interviews with lawmakers, authors, Heritage Foundation experts, and more on the most important policy debates in America today. 
If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. So, full disclosure, I don't watch The Bachelorette, but when all this drama broke out this week between The Bachelorette, Hannah Brown, and contestant Luke Parker, I couldn't help but watch the train wreck. Luke is apparently a born-again Christian who told Hannah early on that he was saving sex for marriage and he wanted her to do the same. But Hannah apparently was not on the same page. She said, guess what? Sex might be a sin out of marriage. Pride is a sin, too. And I feel like this is a pride thing. I feel like I finally gotten clarity on you and I, and I do not want you to be my husband. When Luke asked her if he could have a minute to talk about this, Brown told him she had sex in a windmill, not once but twice, with another contestant. Quote, I have had sex and, like, Jesus still loves me. Here's a clip. We weren't on the same page, and it's like you're holding your... No, 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 no. You're holding other people to a standard that you don't even live by. Maybe because you've abstained from sex, but there's a lot of things that you struggle with. And it's like, because I might might want to or have had sex, so that's like your ex off. Well, like I could have X'd you off so many times from being my husband from things that I want out of a relationship. And that it's just sex for you. And that you're like, if you've had sex, then I'm going home. It's like, well, I want somebody who can get along with people who doesn't have pride issues. Like, there's so many things that I don't want out of a husband that you've shown. And so it's like, oh my gosh. Like, that's a big, like, you. So some viewers are taking Luke's side in this, saying that he has every right to ask this. And this is what Luke had to say, quote, There's a difference between eating with sinners who laugh and sinners who laugh at their sin. Sin is the very thing that put Jesus on the cross, and that's not a laughing matter. Hannah claims she's not laughing about her sin, but her and others appear to be accusing Luke of slut-shaming her. Lauren, who's right? I think they're both right and they're both wrong, which Luke is right. If she claims to be a Christian... You shouldn't be sleeping with people, especially on TV, especially when you're not married to them, especially when you're not in a committed relationship with them. It's a sin. And when you are potentially going to marry this person, as that's what the bachelorette is, he has every right to say, hey, are you sleeping with other people? Because if you are, you don't share a major part of my faith with me. So I don't think it's slut shaming necessarily. I don't think he's coming at it as like, oh, boo, like, I can't even talk to you. We can't be friends. It's like, no, we, we, we don't have this in common. But at the same time, Luke, dude, I don't even know what season The Bachelorette is on. It's been on for years and years and years. You know this happens. Why go on TV and put yourself in this situation? It's in the Bible. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Don't put yourself in these sinful situations. Well, it doesn't sound like Luke is sinning, but he going in, you're right that going into the show, he knows this is what happens. And so he... I guess it's kind of dumb of him to go in with the expectation that she's not going to be engaging in the fantasy suites. Yeah. I mean, if you are a young unmarried couple, I would not ever recommend for you two to go in a bed in a private room because that's, guess what? That's going to lead you and tempt you to sin. So I think, yeah, they're both kind of in the wrong. I'm glad that this discussion is being had because I don't think we talk enough about abstinence and we don't talk about how as Christians, we need to stand up and t actually talk about these issues. Well, Lauren, what I want to know is where is the line between Luke judging her versus God judging her? So as soon as she professes to be a Christian, we are called as Christians to carry one another's burdens. And there's a proverb that says iron sharpens iron. So as Christians, we're not called to judge one another. And we're not called to make people feel bad for their sins. But when you see another Christian who is a professing Christian, we're supposed to call them out on their sins in hopes that we can bring them back on the straight and narrow. Which um, sounds like what he was trying to do, correct? Yeah, you're you're supposed to do it in private. Um, <laughs> not, not, not on, on national, national television. TV, 
<laughs> yeah, it's Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17. Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he shall hear you, you have gained your brother. And then Matthew goes into, if he doesn't hear you and he's a Christian, bring a group into it. If he still doesn't hear you, then you bring the church into it. So there is definitely a biblical precedent of calling out other Christians for their sins. If she wasn't a Christian, it would be different. You can't expect somebody to live their life the way that you want it, want them to. I can't help but think if the roles were reversed and if it were a bachelor and, and a female, you know, contestant asking this question, saying, I am a I am a Christian and I am saving myself for marriage and I want to know if I'm going to proceed in this relationship, are you doing the same? I feel like there would be no judgment on her for asking that. It, it would, you know, it's like common sense if that's a value to her. She has every right to know if her potential husband is on the same page regarding that. But because the roles are flipped and it's a male asking a female, people are having a much stronger reaction to that. And adding to that, as you pointed out, you and I have not been watching The Bachelorette this season. Those who are following it closely, apparently Luke is not the most likable guy. It sounds like he is sinning in many other ways. And so... You know, if you take him in the whole context, he probably comes off as hypocritical in this one scene. But I think it's really interesting, our perspective as people who walked in from the outside and are looking at this one conversation and, and you know, thinking, if this were just a regular couple, you know, could you have this conversation with someone who you are considering marrying one day? And And I do think... Absolutely, you do. You should have this conversation because if this is a major difference, this difference is not going to go away. All right, we're going to leave it there, but stay tuned. Probably the best part of the whole show is coming up. Kelsey sat down with Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino about their new book, Justice on Trial. I read it this weekend while I listened to it. It is just the most phenomenal book. Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right, and if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History, a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today. Up next, we're going to be joined by Molly Hemingway and Carrie Severino, authors of the new book, Justice on Trial, The Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. Molly is a senior editor at The Federalist, a Fox News contributor, and a senior journalism fellow at Hillsdale College. Carrie is the chief counsel and policy director of the Judicial Crisis Network and the lead organization advocating for the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh and other constitutionalist judges. She's also a regular guest on all the major news networks. Molly and Carrie, thank you so much for making time to join the show today. We're happy to be here. Great to be here. I just had the privilege of attending your book launch at the Heritage Foundation. And after walking out, I noticed that there were Chick-fil-A sandwiches. And I have to say, that is a sign that you have officially made it in this world when Heritage upgrades your sandwich options at your book event from the regular heritage sandwiches to Chick-fil-A. That's fantastic. Wow. I love it. I, <laughs> yeah. and, I, and Chick-fil-A is such a, a wonderful place that makes me cry when I go there because everybody is so nice. I know. And you always hear those stories about employees helping others, like saving lives. I think an employee saved a kid's life who was choking the other day. Jumped, oh out, of the, jumped out of the drive through window to save a life. <laughs> right? I mean, that is the kind of service. That's what I'm saying. I've been there with kids and uh, they, they take such good care of my family, you know, just when you need someone to show you a bit of kindness. So I'm I'm very grateful to them. All right. Well, we do have some important things to talk about today. <laughs> so let's get to it. Your new book really reads like a novel because of all the details. I want to know, how did you collect all these details in such a relatively short time since the confirmation? Yeah, it was so exciting working on this book because both Molly and I knew this is like one of the most important things that happened last year. It was not just about, you know, is Brett Kavanaugh going to be confirmed, but 
justice really was on trial and we're looking at all these notions of due process and the rule of law. And we knew there were so many great stories that hadn't been fully explored. We knew we had great access. So we talked to over 100 different people um, from the president, the vice president, people in the White House working on this project. There were people, a lot of people in the Senate from you know dozens of senators and their staffers many members of the Supreme Court, people who knew the Kavanaugh's, people who knew Christine Blasey Ford. So we really spent the first part of this process just doing intensive amounts of interviewing because we needed to know what the story was. And then, you know, at the end, it just had to be it was a wild rush of trying to tell and not forget all of the great storylines that we had learned right. in this process. Carrie and I began actually by reading a ton of history on mm-hmm. Supreme Court nominations. She actually knew a lot of this already. <laughs> she was a clerk on the Supreme Court for Clarence Thomas. She went to Harvard Law School. She had a bit of an advantage on that. But we spent a lot of time reading the history, seeing other books, then doing all these interviews and then figuring out how to how to put everything together. Uh, there was one day where we interviewed a senator on the Senate Judiciary Committee. We met him while it was still dark out. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was that early in the morning. And then we ran from there to interview someone high level at the White House for several hours went from there to interviewing a Supreme Court justice for several hours. So it wasn't just that we were interviewing people. Sometimes these interviews were lasting like five hours. I mean, just unbelievable multiple interviews going yeah. back with the same person because it was a really intense process. I mean, sometimes you'd sit there for hours and you'd realize, oh, my gosh, we're only to the end of August. Right. <laughs> and you got to we got to get through October here. So it was it was a lot of. Right. Or you talk to other people of, and you realize I have more questions for that person that yeah. I didn't get through. But it was exhilarating. And then, Molly, most of these interviews were conducted on background, which not all of our listeners might not know what that means. So first off, can you talk about that decision to publish this book with on background interviews and how you thought through that decision as one of the nation's most prominent media critics? Well, I am happy to deal with sources who need to be on background or anonymous. I think the the question is, what you're willing to do with that information. So in the, in our case, we did have access to people who were not in a practice of speaking with journalists, who for them, the only condition upon which they gave us this access was that we would not identify them. The fact that they spoke with us didn't mean that we just ran with it, though. We would take their stories, then we would also make sure that we checked it with other people who were witnesses or privy to that same information. So uh, we wanted to just write the definitive account. And that doesn't mean just going with what one person says, but when they say that's how a conversation went down, you talk to the other person who was in the conversation or other people that were in the conversation or people that those people spoke to, or you look for corroborating evidence. Um, There were times when we actually did not use information that we got. And sometimes it was just, you know, sometimes it was the most exciting stuff. So we did speak with a lot of people who knew Christine Blasey Ford. We had un believable stories, just very salacious stories. And I would have loved to have put them in the book. And I think Carrie would have, too. We felt because of the nature of those stories, they needed to be on the record. And people were understandably scared to do that. They would say, I have a kid going to college. I don't want to be out here and have the media destroy me while my kid's trying to get into college. Or, you know, I live in this community. So we thought, well, if that's that's their decision, that's fine. But we're not going to put those stories in there. So you just have to make a decision about how to handle each piece of information. And on that note, media bias was a major and consistent theme throughout the book in the confirmation process. The press certainly didn't hold back in investigating Kavanaugh's past, but hardly made any attempt to dig up inconsistencies regarding Christine Blasey Ford's past or inconsistencies in her stories. In one case, which you really walk through in the book uh, well for readers who didn't follow that closely. The Washington Post actually covered up some of these inconsistencies. So looking back, how one-sided was the coverage and what were some of the major details that you think the press really had an obligation and an ability to dig up at the time, but either turned a blind eye or proactively covered up? I think the big problems with media coverage of this were the overarching problems, the narrative push. They'd sort of decided early on that they were hostile to Brett Kavanaugh in the same way that they have decided early on that they're pretty much hostile to anything that's coming out of the Trump administration. And that colored all of their editorial choices from that point forward. Sometimes that was displayed in what they were elevating and what they were not elevating. Um, There is no question that 
everything, no matter how small or tangential that was in the high school yearbook of Brett Kavanaugh, was considered fair game. Um, Allegations that were not well-sourced were considered fair to publish in nationwide magazines. And you weren't seeing the similar similar level of scrutiny, or really any scrutiny, of accusers. And there is an example, too, of NBC News knew that, well, to, to back up, Michael Avenatti put forth a claim of serial gang rape perpetrated by Brett Kavanaugh. And he said he had a witness. She had a sworn affidavit. And he said he had a second witness. NBC News actually knew that that supposed second witness was denying what his claims were. They sat on that until after he was confirmed, until weeks after he was confirmed, even though they had it before the confirmation vote. This is not appropriate journalistic behavior. Uh, What's unfortunate is we didn't see much of a reckoning uh, with the poor decisions that were made. Uh, People were giving themselves awards for how they handled this coverage, even though by any objective standard, they fell down on the job. Carrie, I know you both cite a couple examples that you did feel comfortable publishing about Ford that were previously unknown to the public. Is, Is there one or two examples that stand out to you that you can share with our listeners? Yeah, I mean, one thing that we heard repeatedly from the people who knew her at the time, and many of whom were, were and some continue, continue to be friends of hers, were that the image that was being portrayed was of someone who, you know, she was saying, well, I went to this party, I only had one beer. We learned that she actually was a very heavy drinker. This is they, what everyone what is reporting, right? They're saying she that she was a heavy drinker at the time. Um, they, they were saying that she was actually very aggressive with boys at the time. So all of this is at odds with the public image, as well as... You know, she was being uh, portrayed as someone who was, you know, marginally political, if if political at all. And uh, it, that was significant because um, we also spoke to people familiar with her social media presence before it was scrubbed. Because, of course, before her, her story came out, all of that was scrubbed from the Internet, not even just right in September when it happened, but actually earlier than that. And so we we learned that, in fact... On Facebook, one person described her as crazy liberal. She's, you know, you we all know the kind of people who have the wild Facebook feeds on either extreme. That's the kind of person that she was. So people who were saying, well, she's not even political. She could have no possible motive here to not want Kavanaugh on the court. Well, that's really belied by um, by the information that's out there. And it was information that was intentionally kept quiet and hidden. And it, it, it's something that unfortunately not enough people dug to find out whether that was true or not, or they just kind of accepted the claims of, oh, no, no, she's not political at all and just went with that. Right. She pretty clearly scrubbed her social media accounts. And as a journalist, no matter what side you're on, that should be a pretty glaring red flag. But Well, there might have been legitimate reasons. You know, you can understand that someone would say, oh, I was about to go public with a pretty big story. I didn't want people going through my records. There, there's a reasonable approach to it, but to not mention it, to not address the issue, or even to not address the fact that that explanation would be at odds with her own claims of not wanting her name to be public. You know, there are things that we have from her letter she didn't want to be public. We also know that she called the Washington Post tip line, which is not normally something you do when you're trying to keep information from getting out publicly. Well, speaking of one of the more salacious allegations, Michael Avenatti, who represented Kavanaugh accuser Julie Swetnick, who also, by the way, has been arrested in New York on federal fraud, embezzlement and extortion charges, is disputing some of the details in the book um, about his client and actually invited you both on national TV to talk about it. He tweeted at Molly and uh, your co-author saying you have, quote, fabricated a number of facts for your recent book relating to Kavanaugh, including relating to Miss Swetnick. I am calling her on it. Molly, pick any network, even your beloved Fox, and let's discuss what really happened. Time to step up. Are you going to take him up on this offer? (laughs) I I got a note from someone that said, how much are you paying Michael Avenatti to promote your book? Um, I I think that is a surreal moment. We were were, uh, kind of enjoying that. Uh, It is interesting to note that Michael Avenatti went on MSNBC and CNN, I think it was like 250 times last year. He was a welcome guest by these networks who were happy to hear whatever he had to say. Uh, Carrie and I have a book that is topping the bestseller lists on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Um, It is doing incredibly well. It breaks news. It is an inside look at uh, an institution that very few people get an inside look at. And we have not been 
we have not been welcomed by MSNBC and CNN. Uh, so I think it's funny that he wants to get back on those on on those uh, networks, but I do not think he rises to the level of who we want to be discussing with. <laughs> Would you say that these sorts of dubious allegations, big picture, damaged the Me Too movement? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the frustrations of this whole process. And it was kind of going on the coattails of movement that was making some important and serious points about men who are in positions of power abusing their roles. But when you have allegations like this, which were, first of all, not even in that same category, this is talking about something between two high schoolers, but more importantly, one that had no corroboration, no support. And in fact, a lot of all the evidence we have come to find out afterwards, has cast doubt on the allegations. That actually has uh, brings all of the rest of the Me Too movement uh, kind of down with it. I think a lot of people who got caught on a bandwagon and just started saying, oh, well, ever, you know, believe all women. No, believe women who have who actually have um, claims that are, that are backed up by facts, because it's important to not allow a, a crying wolf phenomenon to distract us from the really serious problems that need to be dealt with in our society. Right. And then we saw, you know, one allegation with no cooperation led to the snowball effect of these other allegations. Yeah. Increasingly bizarre and some of them just crazy on their face. And many of which people admitted almost as soon as they made the allegations that they were false. So, I mean, that this if are people who are admitted liars to the committee. That is not going to be good for anyone, um, least of all women who are victims of sexual assault. And there's many reasons to actually go pick up this book, Justice on Trial, and read it for yourself. But I think um, if if you are interested in the Me Too movement, um, it is really important to understand the context of this because we're not just talking about um, the allegations that you mostly heard about in the mainstream media. There, there, there were other ones brought forward um, that didn't even fully make it to the media that you you all discussed well, being brought to the committees. Exactly. Just the general climate. You know, we it's called justice on trial because it's not just about justice, Brett Kavanaugh being on trial, but the very notion of justice, of due process, of rule of law, of presumption of innocence. And I think that's what really gripped the country last year and probably why it's it's having such a reaction, why the book is having such a reaction, is it is terrifying to see people and institutions that should know better casting that principle of 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 innocence being a presumption um, that that when you make an allegation that it does need to be treated respectfully and it needs to have corroborating evidence in order to be taken seriously and, and to to make a case. An allegation is not sufficient for conviction. And it was so uh, disappointing to see people who should know better not holding to that, what should be a common value among all Americans. Justice on Trial talks about a number of key Republicans who were pivotal in pushing forward Kavanaugh's nomination. This clip from Senator Lindsey Graham that we'll listen to is one of them. I would never do to them what you've done to this guy. This is the most unethical sham since I've been in politics. And if you really wanted to know the truth, you sure as hell wouldn't have done what you've done to this guy. Are you a gang rapist? No. I cannot imagine what you and your family have gone through. Boy, y'all want power. God, I hope you never get it. I hope the American people can see through this sham that you knew about it and you held it. You had no intention of protecting Dr. Ford. None. She's as much of a victim as you are. God, I hate to say it because these have been my friends. But let me tell you, when it comes to this, you're looking for a fair process. You came to the wrong town at the wrong time, my friend. Do you consider this a job? So there were a number of breakout, memorable sound bites from this confirmation process. That one really comes to mind. And also just the general fact that we had President Trump, who did not buckle under pressure to withdraw Kavanaugh's nomination. Do you think this was a unique political environment and and would this happen again? What can we learn from this moment? 
they think that was a very powerful moment because it showed the frustration amongst the Republican senators with the game playing and the politicization here. And I think also because he spoke for a lot of Americans in that moment of people who, and, I, and he's right, the American people do not want to see those games played. Our concern is that many of those same people have not yet been held accountable. And we, we want to make sure uh, that if we want to make sure this doesn't happen again, we need to make sure that people don't view this as a successful technique. Now, we know they, they weren't able to uh, block Kavanaugh's confirmation with this means, and that is that is a good thing. It was It's wonderful that Kavanaugh was strong through the process, that President Trump stuck with him, because a lot of people we talked to, you know, they speculated not every Republican president would have stood by a nominee under these kind of circumstances. President Trump did consistently throughout, even when some people around him were suggesting otherwise. And a few key senators, um, Senate Senator Grassley, mm-hmm. Senator McConnell, were absolutely steadfast. What is uh, you know, perhaps troubling is that not every Republican senator was so steadfast. We go through some of those tales in, in Justice on Trial. Going forward, I do think it's incumbent upon people to understand the need to fight. This is one of the themes we look at in the book is how now Justice Kavanaugh is getting different advice about how to handle the smearing of his reputation. And some, I guess you might might call them like old school Republicans are telling him to just emphasize his wonderful treatment of women over the years and talk about the courage and bravery of Blasey Ford and just to be nice and deferential and to keep those values at And other people are saying, you know, are you kidding? They're trying to destroy you as a person. You have to fight for your name and honor and reputation. And that struggle that he goes through where he's transitioning from his, he was, you know, longtime Bush White House employee. He was nominated by President Bush for his federal court that he served on for 12 years. His close family friends with the Bush family and his evolution from that way of being into understanding that they are coming to destroy everything he holds dear and that he needs to fight for it is a similar evolution to what I think many people in the country have gone through in recent years. So I sped through this book in I think less than a week. And I have to say, coming from the perspective of someone who only covered it as a conservative journalist and really just as a public bystander, it was kind of traumatizing to relive it. I want to know what it was like for both of you to pour your hearts and souls into this book for months and and then now be reliving it. Yeah, going through some of the, many of those interviews, it was like having to relive it sometimes multiple times in a day well, as much. And, and we're you not go just, through this drama right. with each person. You know, they were over and over, over and over. And so the people we interview are going Uh, I think some of them thought both it kind of was sparking PTSD after the crazy experience they went through. But also it was almost like therapy. They're kind of talking through all of those emotions. So it was it was really actually challenging. I don't know. I don't know if we talked about this, Carrie, but when we were reading the audio book, there were parts where I was reading where I was getting emotional and I'm thinking, okay, we wrote this like we went through this. Like, why is it still affecting me after going through it dozens or hundreds Mm -hmm. of times? But why was it ultimately worth it to go through all this? Well, coming from my perspective as someone who clerked for Justice Thomas, I feel like what we're seeing here is just a repeat of many things we saw in his confirmation process, not just the attempts to to uh, defeat him and the use of unverified allegations to do so, et cetera. But, you know, when Thomas was confirmed, two to one Americans believed him over Anita Hill, black, white men, women the people who watched and lived through those uh, hearings believe Justice Thomas, but they weren't content to just pack up and go home after kind of being defeated and Thomas was confirmed and he's in the court for life. The other side then instituted a campaign to discredit everything that he did in the court. In doing so, they tried to continue to smear his name. I think if you took that survey today, you would see that many Americans either weren't paying attention, have forgotten, or many, you know, many people who weren't around and old enough to appreciate what happened to him. We wanted to make sure that we got ahead of the revisionist history in this case and told a very thorough and accurate account of what really happened. So that campaign of discrediting a justice can't happen again. And so that people understand what to expect the next time, because, you know, this is what happened when we replaced a swing vote on the court with a conservative nominee by President Trump. What happens if President Trump gets to appoint a nominee to replace a liberal justice who might retire? That, I think, could frighteningly be even worse. And we need Americans to have their eyes wide open now to know what they're getting into in the hopes that we can prevent it from happening to another person. 
Right. And Molly, just from a journalism perspective, given the horrific coverage of this confirmation process, how important was it to set the record straight in this book? It wasn't just about setting the record straight, although obviously that was important. And on that note, that is something that really motivated me during the confirmation battle. I became privy to some stories showing just really bad behavior and thoughtless and cruel behavior by some reporters to cause problems between friends, um, by, between Kavanaugh friends that just seemed, again, more cruel than the normal things you're dealing with of journalistic bad behavior. But it's about setting the record straight. But also just as a journalist, I knew we had a good story. We both, Carrie and I both went through it. We knew we knew some of the stories. We knew we had good stories. We knew it would just be uh, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to talk about something exciting that also enabled us to talk about deeper and more important issues. And you just can't pass up an opportunity like that. So I'm so glad that we teamed together to do it. What lessons should we be taking away for the conservative movement, specifically when it comes to the nomination of the next Supreme Court justice? Well, uh, one of the main things, I mean, we've learned something from every nomination battle, I hope, especially the ones that have been hard, like the Bork or the Thomas battle. We've learned to make sure we have people with solid judicial philosophies, not to appoint people with a, a blank slate kind of record who have an actual solid record. We learned to appoint people who have courage and are willing to stand by their difficult decisions on the court so they, so they aren't going to flinch in the face of public pressure. And then from this nomination, I think we really learned that you have to be ready for anything, And that you have to stand up and fight and can't just hope that the truth will just become obvious in and of itself. You have to make sure that you are out there um, fighting sometimes against a public information campaign coming from the other side that's not always going to be playing fair. I think there is a naivete that we've seen on the right sometimes and sometimes, unfortunately, on from the right's leaders of thinking that. The political situation has not broken down as significantly as it has. And the Kavanaugh confirmation battle should have been a wake-up call about how seriously progressive left is taking the battle for institutions and what lengths they will go to to control those institutions. And that we hope that as Americans, we never lose our, our good virtues and our civility and whatnot. But we need to also just be aware of the seriousness of the fight and how it requires thinking very smartly strategically about how to combat. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we are going to talk more about the personal toll this fight took on Judge Brett Kavanaugh's wife and family. Stay tuned. We are back, and every week here on Problematic Women, we honor a strong woman as the Problematic Woman of the Week. This week, we want to highlight Ashley Kavanaugh, who, according to this amazing new book, Justice on Trial, was a rock throughout this pretty horrific confirmation process. Molly or Carrie, can one of you tell us more about Ashley? This was one of the more fun people to learn about as part of our reporting. Uh, Ashley Kavanaugh, the wife of Justice Brett Kavanaugh, a woman who in her own right has had quite the career. She was a secretary to Governor George W. Bush, worked on his initial campaign and comes to work in the White House as his personal secretary, seated right outside the Oval Office, being a witness to so many events in history, including the terror attacks on 9-11, and uh, goes on to work on setting up the George W. Bush uh, Presidential Library, becomes town manager of Chevy Chase. When her husband is uh, being considered for the nomination, she actually prays that he will not receive the nomination. They'd already gone through two very difficult confirmation battles, and she did not particularly want to go through it again. When we started reporting the story, we were talking to people close to the Kavanaugh's who kept telling us that Ashley had been a source of strength for them as they were going through the battle. Like they were upset at what was happening to their friend, and they were getting support from Ashley, words of encouragement, um, songs to listen to, scripture verses. So we knew we were dealing with something, uh, you know, an interesting situation that someone who's going through what has to be the worst worst episode in her life is so strong in her faith and in her marriage that she is able to support other people. Uh, we tell stories in Justice on Trial about how they share what's going on with their young daughters. And I, you know, I don't know if people have really thought about that, how you had thought about when you're making these allegations against someone without evidence or when the media are running wild with them, that has to be explained to, to children um, who are not, you know, who are, who, are, who are relatively young. And 
we uh, we learned a lot about her that we liked. I don't know if you want to add to that, Carrie. Yeah, I think it was it was uh, fascinating. Even just some of the the fun stories of how you know the press is is uh, camping out in front of their house, and we we had remembered stories where they're like, okay, we've got some people in front of the Barrett's house, we got people in front of the Kavanaugh's house. Who's it going to be? And they didn't want to to be giving away who the nominee was. So even before it was maybe fully decided, certainly before they knew whether Brett Kavanaugh would be the nominee, they decided they they should just get out of the house so no one can be figuring out anything based on them. So they end up having to sneak out the backyard. They have to stash their clothes in a treehouse of a neighbor's so no one sees them leaving with things. They go out to dinner to make sure no one's trailing them before they head to their their undisclosed location where they're uh, hiding out at a friend's house. So it was really just fun to see that kind of there was that excitement part of it. But then, of course, the challenge of how does she go through the um, you know, the difficult process. But it was it was also great to see the support that she had from friends around her and, and from her neighbors, many of whom didn't share their political approach, perhaps. But, um, you know, for example, right at the very end of this process, as town manager, she has to host a neighborhood barbecue and she's hosting it at her house. Remember that the, that the, that the press are camping out in front of and managed to ask the press, like, please, we promise we're not going to try to sneak out and do anything. Can you just give us one day? So she was able to have people over and she was nervous. How are my neighbors going to respond? But everyone was so gracious and so supportive and thoughtful. And just seeing that side of how some of these good things and, and good moments of courage can come out of such a horrible process. Yeah, I loved the way you both weaved in these very vivid little stories that are so relatable. Um, and I and I think that's why she's such a compelling character in this narrative, because, you know, I, I would imagine even some of Kavanaugh's strongest opponents could possibly feel for her in this regard and we, what she went through. We did talk to people who were in the hearing room when the hearing is reopened and you have Blasey Ford testifying and Judge Kavanaugh testifying. And they were saying that it was such an emotional experience, frankly, on for, for all people involved, whether you were watching mm-hmm. the first set of hearings or the second, that I think it was a very intimate setting by that point. It's a much smaller hearing room where that's happening. And people who are on one side or the other sitting right next to each other, they were all emotional and moved by, again, by both sets of testimony. Mm-hmm. So the Kavanaugh's two daughters were also a source of quiet strength behind him in this process. And I think a big reason why he wouldn't back down. Let's take a walk back and listen to this quick soundbite from the hearing when Judge Kavanaugh talks about their little girls. Not questioning that Dr. Ford may have been sexually assaulted by some person in some place at some time. But I have never done this to her or to anyone. That's not who I am. It is not who I was. I am innocent of this charge. I intend no ill will to Dr. Ford and her family. The other night, Ashley and my daughter Liza said their prayers. And little Liza, all of 10 years old, said to Ashley, we should pray for the woman. It's a lot of wisdom from a 10-year-old. We mean we mean no ill will. I know this is a podcast, so you can't see, but Molly sitting here is almost in tears. It's just horrific to listen to. This is a judge who served for 12 years. By that point, had a stellar reputation cultivated over decades. And you can just hear the brokenness there. But also learn a little bit about the Kavanaugh family, that they are operating in such a way that they are praying with their children, that they know to care about other people. We did learn stories about the children that moved us, including that before this reopened set of hearings, there were crazy hearings you know, that lasted for four days where there were protests and people being dragged out and getting arrested and shouts and whatnot. And the Children were actually there for part of that time, and it was really unfortunate for them to have to witness how some senators were treating him and how the protesters were treating them. But 
they were critiquing the protest signs, including or the chants and the protest signs. They did not like that they did not rhyme, for instance. And I just thought that was funny. Yeah, yeah, that they're able to see. I mean, e- even in the midst of all this chaos, they're like that's ridiculous. Those chants don't even rhyme. So <laughs> they 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 did have a really good spirit about it. I mean, that moment in the hearing room, I think. I, I don't know if there was a dry eye in the country at that point. We talked to so many people, in particular men who were who were in that room or who were watching and who said, we're talking about how moving it was and said, no, just whatever you do, don't put this in the book. But I have to say I did tear up a little bit at that point. And we heard that from so many different men that we thought it was it's really funny. They're all they're all very concerned, but they don't know that everyone Everybody was crying. Was. And, you know, we had people tell in the room who were telling us that, you know, even people on the other side of the room were crying. So you had you had the people who were there for Christine Blasey Ford who were just moved by the power of that testimony as well. Well, the question I want to end on comes perfectly after this because Molly, you have two little girls and Carrie, you have six children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm wondering first off, you both have full-time jobs and then some and did this book on top of that and are also pretty incredible mothers. How the heck do you do this all? I have been giggling when people ask us, like, why did you decide to do this or how did this come about? Because I have no idea what we were thinking. We are two of the busiest people I know and and so many responsibilities. And we kept coming up with reasons why we shouldn't write the book and they just kept getting knocked down. Lack of time was a huge one for both of us, particularly because we'd both been through several years of quite busy activity that, that takes a toll on the family. We are... I'll go ahead and speak for myself, I guess, even though this applies to both of us, but I'm blessed with an incredibly supportive husband, very loving children, and could not have done my part without my husband Mark's complete support from start to finish. And both of our husbands actually helped us with just thinking through the project and finishing the project. And I firmly believe that neither of us could have done it without the support of our husbands and families. But I do feel... I felt bad. Sometimes my children were sleeping on the floor of my office, sometimes just so that they could get time with me, which is a is not, you know, not how I wanted to be. But that's one of the blessings of us finishing this project so quickly that no more office floor sleeping for the kids. <laughs> and you can go back. It's, it's it's a discreet period of time and it's like, okay, this is gonna be a sprint. Although it's a marathon length sprint, right. but it was but we knew there was an end to it. Just I, before you talk, Carrie, mm-hmm. I do want to mention There is something so amazing about seeing Carrie in action. She has six kids. She is an incredible mother. And she would sometimes be holding her baby in her lap while she's typing and working on this. And just seeing that love that she has for her family and also our project was really wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) Like, now we're all going to be crying. No, it was was a really, I mean, frankly, this whole process kind of was. I remember, you know, saying when when Justice Kennedy retired, being like, okay, this is going to be a really busy summer, but it's going to be done It'll be done by October. We'll be good. And so I had all these things like I had signed up for you know, carpooling to volleyball starting October, first week of October because <laughs> it's all going to be over. And things kept on getting crazy. I remember my eight-year-old being like, Mom, I thought you said this was going to be done last week. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. It's going to be done. <laughs> I thought so, Maybe too. this week. Maybe next week. And explaining to her at one point, I, I know this is I know you're not going to understand this right now, but the reason that I, this is so important to me, and I know I'm sure Molly would say the same thing, is because we want to have a country that our children can grow up in that does have that respect for the rule of law. And that's something that is worth fighting for. And these are the you know, Justice Kavanaugh is going to be a justice on the court through much of our children's adult lives. And in the next nominee and the next one, all of those people are going to be confirmed in the shadow of what happened here. I mean, in the moment, it meant definitely some later nights. I know at the end, my craziest I'm going through this last read through. We were trying to catch all the typos and the kids are like, oh, we want a bedtime story. And I said, OK, the bedtime story is justice on trial. So the only <laughs> I wanted, how can we? So there are some times when you can kind of make it all happen simultaneously. <laughs> and they found some they actually were, were definitely helpful and found a couple little wording changes they suggested. So they've been wonderfully good sports on it. And now my oldest one for our our library summer reading challenge has to read a book by a local author as one of the things to check off her list so she can read the localist of authors, the one that lives in her house. And I hope that one day they'll all be able to look back on it and be thankful that they're living, hopefully, in an America where we've learned some of the lessons of this crazy confirmation. I don't know if it's the pregnancy hormones or what, but you guys are making me <laughs> emotional now. <laughs>
Thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast today. You both are inspiration to me, everybody, all of our listeners at Problematic Women. We are so grateful for your efforts in writing this book. Again, it is Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Supreme Court. Please go out and buy it. Support these two incredible women and all they are doing to save this country. Thank you very much, Kelsey. Do you own an Amazon Echo? You can now get the Daily Signal podcast every day as part of your daily Alexa flash briefing. It's easy to do. Just open your Amazon Alexa app, go to settings and select flash briefing. From there, you can search for the Daily Signal podcast and add it to your flash briefing so you can stay up to date with the top news of the day that the liberal media isn't covering. Kelsey, that was such a great interview. I just really can't get enough of what Molly and Carrie have to say. Yeah. And if you enjoyed that, I highly encourage you to check out on the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel, Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of Supreme Court. It is a heritage event where Molly and Carrie were featured. And the best part of it is they open it up by talking about four women who were really essential in pushing through the Kavanaugh nomination. And as a women's podcast, we applaud that. So catch that on, again, the Heritage Foundation YouTube. And that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for another edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or even better, just tell a friend. This podcast is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans. Associate producer, Samantha Rank. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton. 